So I hope you got a Bible with you. Open it up to Genesis. Matter of fact, just the very first page of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to be as we continue the Imago Day series. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're three weeks into this series about what is it What does it mean, what are the implications that we have been made in the image of God, made in his own image by God for his glory, to reflect his glory in the world? So what does that mean for our lives as his people? And so the the sermon title today is Gender Complementarity, which is a lot more technical than I like a sermon title to be. But the idea is basically this, that there, there are times where we're interacting with a doctrinal idea in scripture, and there are technical terms that if we want to enter into the conversation, we do well to learn what these terms mean. One of them is complementarianism. Uh, Another is egalitarianism. I'm not going to define the latter so much as define the former. As we move along, we'll get into that together. But I want to begin by just reading our text. So if you would, Genesis chapter 1, follow along as I read. In verse 26 is where I'm going to start. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. So these are the blueprints. This is how, Genesis 1.26, this is how the world was meant to work, the relationship that God established between Adam and Eve, right? And in Christ, through the church, God is bringing this back online. That's, that's the mission. God is restoring creation to his original design through people who are being remade in the image of God, in the image of Jesus Christ, conformed to his image. So, in other words, the prospect of Genesis 1 isn't gone. The prospect of shared rule over God's world as God's people for his glory is not a pipe dream. It's a commission. It's an exciting commission. I hope it excites us today to think about this commission. You could call this commission a great commission. You wouldn't be wrong to call it that. Matter of fact, we'll see that the trajectory of Genesis chapter 1 is actually flying toward Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go into all the world, multiply, be fruitful, make disciples, and spread image bearers throughout the world. That's where this is ultimately going to land. But I'm going to unpack this under three headings. So the song, the sadness, and the promise. The song, the sadness, and the promise. It's been said, I love him, so I love the fact that we were singing it as well this morning. That song has been sung for, for years by the church. And it's said that of all the songs that have been translated into the English language, the oldest hymn that is sung in the English language is, Be Thou My Vision. That song was, many believe that it was written, the lyric was written in the 6th century. So we're talking the 500s AD. The melody for that song, 
to which it was set, that melody was written 100 years before that, like 433 AD, the melody, somebody was somewhere in Ireland, a blacksmith somewhere, and he was humming. In other words, that melody has been hummed and sung by the people of God now for over 1,500 years. It is an ancient song that has come all the way down to us today. And, but there is a far older song, and I would contend that when we look at the New Testament, we hear the church humming this ancient tune, and the ancient tune goes all the way back to Genesis. It goes all the way back to the first day when God made Adam in his image, and this song was sung. God sang it when he said, let us make man in our own image, male and female. He sang it when he said, it's not good for Adam to be alone, and then he sings it again. Matter of fact, Adam is the one who we hear singing it next. The very first poem that we find in the Bible is Adam going poetic. He wakes up, he sees Eve, and he sings the song of complementarity. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's singing this ancient song. Now you fast forward from that moment in Genesis chapter one and you move to Genesis chapter three when everything went sideways, right? Adam and Eve, they sin against God, they break the world, Sin comes pouring into the world. It affects our relationship with God. It affects our relationship with one another. So there's marriage friction. There's family friction. There's government problems. All this stuff comes pouring into the world as a result of the fall. And then what, what happens? God doesn't just give up and say, okay, down you go and judges the whole world and, and it's in the end of the story. No, no, God sends in the fullness of time. We know this. This is the central story of the Bible, right? God sends Messiah. He sends his own son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, into the world. Jesus Christ lives a perfect life. He goes to the cross. He hangs there suspended between earth and heaven as the mediator between God and man, reconciling man to God through his blood shed on the cross. And he rises again from the dead. And then he says, everybody who believes in me, meet me in Jerusalem a few days from now. And I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. The Spirit is going to come and he's going to activate Adam, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and they're gonna work together for the mission of the gospel. That's, that's the picture, and, and what happened there in the first century in the Roman Empire was really odd. Rome was not used to that. Women being given and attributed that kind of dignity and worth, that equal standing, that image-bearing language was not familiar in the Roman Empire. Uh, Baylor University Distinguished Professor of Sociology of Religion, Rodney Stark, he writes a, a number of big, massive volumes on what happened back there in the first century that, that caused there to be a, a turning of the world upside down. Here's what he says. Women were especially drawn to Christianity because it offered them a life that was so greatly superior to the life they otherwise would have led. In no ancient group were women equal to men. They had no right to bear witness and could not expect credence to be given to anything they reported. As Rabbi Eliezer is quoted in the Babylonian Talmud, better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. And Jesus interrupted that 
and he dignified women. Matter of fact, he walks up to a Samaritan woman in John chapter four and he says, I wanna talk with you. And she says, rabbis don't talk to girls like me. And he says, this one does. And not only does he talk to her, he changes her whole life, her whole story. And not only that, he makes her the first apostle to the Gentiles. She goes running down to the city. She says, I'll be back in a second and I'm bringing people with me. And she goes running through the town saying, come see a man. She's evangelizing the Gentiles right there in Samaria. She's the first apostle. Jesus dignifies women time and time and time again in the pages of the Gospels. Then you come over into Hebrews chapter 11 and it's this story of all the golden collection stories of God and his people. And you, you, you're rolling out this parade of heroes of the faith. And right next to these men are these women. And then you come to the end of Paul's book of Romans, his letter to the Romans, and he's listing all these people, 33 names, and he says, the, I could not do what I've been doing without these indispensable co-workers in gospel ministry. And right next to the names of the men are the names of the women. And all along, what do you hear happening? You hear this ancient song from Genesis 1 is being hummed underneath the entire New Testament. Sons of Adam and sons of Eve being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with image bearers for God's glory. It was a strange thing that happened in the first century. Nobody could have anticipated it. Historian named Diana Lynn Severance, she wrote a book called Feminine Threads, Women in the Tapestry of Christian History. Here's what she writes, listen to this. Wherever Christianity has gone, the condition and status of women has improved. The history of the treatment and position of women itself is a useful apologetic for the Christian faith. It was a unique thing that God was doing in the world. He was bringing the, the, the song of Genesis 1 back online into reality through his image bearers in the church. Here's the point for us to take away for now. As image bearers, we have indelible worth and dignified work. So we said that in the very first message in this series is what does it mean that we're created in the image of God? It means we have dignity, indelible worth. We have indelible dignity because we bear the image of God himself and we have responsibility. Be fruitful, multiply, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and so on and so forth. So there's dignified work that he's given for us to do. I think this is important for us to, to bear in mind is it's not idolatrous to celebrate the dignity of image bearers. That's not us being wrongly man-centered. You know, in other words, I think that we're so uh, aware of the human penchant towards self-worship in our culture that we swing the pendulum to the opposite side to make sure we never think we're worth anything because God is worth everything. As though you can only make one statement or the other. You can either say God is worthy but if you say God is worthy, you have to say I am worthless, right? Or the, or the opposite. But here's, here's a song that was given to the church in the book of Psalms. So there's a hymnal right in the middle of your Bible. And these songs would have been sung by God's ancient people in Israel. And in chapter 8 of the Psalms, we read these words, sung by Israel. Verse 3, Lord, when I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him, mankind, male and female, 
a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under man's feet. What's this song about? It's Imago Day. It's an Imago Day hymn. And it's not set in contrast to the ultimate glory that belongs to God. Matter of fact, the very first verse of that song says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and you have set glory in man just underneath the heavenly beings. You have crowned mankind with glory and honor. You know, four words that Christians who are aware of what Imago Day means, four words that Christians ought to be able to say, no matter who's standing in front of you, we ought to be able to look them in the eye and say four words without any qualification. You matter to God. You matter to God. Full stop. Sometimes I think the church, in order to counteract this human penchant toward man-centeredness, robs people of their ability to hear God whisper worthy in their souls, to hear God say, that, that fingerprint that you see, that's mine. That's my fingerprints on your life. I made you a glorious image bearer of me. I set you in the world to rule in my behalf. Vice regents, let's run the place together. I'm gonna use you in that way. So what does, think about what does complementarity mean? So this is a term that we're using. What does it mean? So first, I just think we need to work with the English language. So a complement with the letter I, a complement, is what? Is when you pay, when you say something nice to somebody else, right? When you, when you give them some kind of polite expression of admiration or praise. That's compliment, a complement with an E is this. Something that completes or makes perfect. Either of two parts or things needed to complete the whole. Counterparts. So now we're talking about what is complementary, complementarity, what does that mean? It means we fill each other out. We round out what's lacking in the other. We need each other. Here's what it means. Men and women are not interchangeable. We're not interchangeable. We're not redundant. God has made us to reflect his glory. I love, Mary Cashin is a, uh, a keen and insightful writer. She writes for Desiring God. She writes for Gospel Coalition, a number of other places, an author, and she, she writes these words about complementarianism. I think this is helpful. Complementarians believe that God created male and female as complementary expressions of the image of God. Male and female are counterparts in reflecting his glory. Though both sexes bear God's image fully on their own, each does so in a unique and distinct way. Male and female in relationship reflects truths about Jesus that aren't reflected by male alone or female alone. Which is just simply to say, men and women need one another. 
What do you see going on there in Genesis chapter one? You see God makes Adam and then he forms Eve from his side and brings Eve to his side. And Adam is called to lead and Eve is given as his helper. That's the term that's used. I will make a helper fit for him to complement him. And and lest we think, I hope if you were here when we were studying through the book of Ephesians, we stopped and unpacked this extensively. So you might want to go back in Ephesians 5 and listen to that message. But if that term helper strikes us as kind of a, a diminishing term, we just need to study more fully what the Old Testament says about the word ezer, the word helper. It is not a diminishing word at all. It occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. Two times it refers to Eve. Three times it refers to powerful nations that Israel called upon when Israel was in dire need. And they called, I need an Azair, like stat. We need help, big, strong, awesome help, and we need it yesterday. That's the Azair. And then 16 remaining times, guess who's the Azair? God. It is not a diminishing term. God himself says, I'll be your helper. That's my role. Doesn't make him beneath us. He is our helper. The psalmist says this repeatedly. Psalm 146, 5. Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose Ezer is the God of Jacob. Psalm 121, 1 and 2. I lift my eyes toward the hills. Where does my Ezer come from? My Ezer, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Complementarity, if we understand what Scripture says about this, both in Genesis as well as in other places in Scripture, it it doesn't mute the fact that there are distinctive roles for men and women, both in the home and in the church. We don't run away from that. It's clear biblical teaching. So, for example, here at the Church of Brook Hills, we have 30 elders. All 30 of those elders are male elders, qualified men to lead in the church. And we don't do that I hope and pray because we're stuck in traditionalism of the past. I hope and pray that we do that because it's the clear teaching of the New Testament. We don't, we don't intend to be or to try to be wiser than God's word. So if God's word says something and it's clear there in the text of scripture, we want to say, that's clear. God knows how to build the church, so let's do it that way. Rather than do it our own way, let's, let's do it that way. But, but hear this, while scripture and New Testament particularly, reserves certain offices and functions in the church for for male leaders. What becomes so clear in the New Testament is that Jesus redefines what leadership feels like. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's the picture of leadership in the home in Ephesians chapter 5? A husband leading by laying down his his life for his wife cherishing her, nourishing her. That's the picture. First Peter 5, and Peter says, shepherd the body that is among you, not lording it over them as domineering those in your charge. Leadership changes. Has a whole different feel than the Roman Empire. And the first instinct in the church, the first in- impulse, if you will, of complementarianism isn't kind of a, a suspicious policing of women's motives, you know, lest they get any ideas about running the church or, you know, preaching on Sundays. That is not the spirit of this, this, this heavy-handed suspicion of motives. The first song in creation, the oldest song in the world, was sung by a true complementarian. His name was Adam. 
And when Adam woke up and saw Eve, he didn't say, look how different we are. Why can't you be more like me? Or look how strong I am. He said, look how similar we are. The song was, at last, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, you will be called woman for you were taken out of man. It's this song of I need you, I celebrate you, I see you as an image bearer. You're not like anything else in the world. In other words, the deepest impulse God set within the heart of the first man in the presence of the first woman is an imago Dei impulse. It's to see her as a glory-bearing image-bearer of God. The article was written sometime back uh, at Nine Marks, and it was about how do we teach our children complementarianism? How do we give these ideas away to boys and girls as discipleship? culture in the church. Here's what he said. I love this. He said, teach them that to biblically understand their identity, it's necessary to view maleness and femaleness first as expressions of the imago Dei and second in juxtaposition to each other. In other words, it's training that instinct to say, when a little boy looks at a little girl in Sunday school class or wherever, his first thought isn't, you can't be what I can be. It's not roles. It's not policing who can do what and drawing circles around our job descriptions. It's Imago Day. We are the same. We are image bearers before. That's the first impulse of complementarianism. Here's how I have it in your notes so we can hold on to it this way. Complementarianism's favorite thing to say isn't you're not me. It's I need you. That's what complementarity means. I need you. God did not make us redundant. I need you, you need me. So there's the song and then there's the sadness. So where is Imago Day breaking down in our society? Where is it breaking down in our world? And, and literally, where do we begin? Where gender and sexuality is being redefined and confused in our culture. The sexual revolution that's underway, LGBTQ activists are using illustrations known as the, the gender unicorn. It's a, a drawing and it's being presented to elementary school kids, sometimes without their parents even knowing in advance. Or, or instead of the gingerbread man, the genderbred person. And there are illustrations drawing these things so that they can teach these elementary school kids that your sex was assigned at your birth and that your gender identity is fluid and it exists along a spectrum so that you could be a boy today and a girl tomorrow and both on the third day and neither on the fourth day. And that's not an exaggeration. That is literally, if you go and look at the Google picture of the gender-bred person, that's literally what you see. All of this exists on a spectrum. So how do we respond as Christians to to that, one, even, even when I say that, there can be a tendency in the church of Jesus Christ uh, to do something that is not winsome. And that is this, the New Testament doesn't train Christians to sneer at a world that's drinking from broken cisterns. 
That is, that is not the Christian impulse. When we look at Romans chapter one and we see the chaos in our culture as a world slides deeper and deeper toward confusion and depravity of mind, Christians don't laugh, Christians don't smirk. Christians weep with Romans one open on, opened on our laps. Christians weep, Christians pray, Christians intercede, Christians befriend. So what about that's kind of an out there conversation and that needs to be happening. We need clarity on those things. But what about the church? So some parts of the church have, have abandoned what scripture says about the differences between men's and women's roles in the home and in the church. Just abandoned it altogether. But, but sacrificing the clear teaching of scripture to pursue a culturally acceptable vision of gender equality is too high a price to pay for those who want to be led by God's word. And we're those people who want to be led by God's word. We don't want to go with our intuition. We don't want to hold our finger in the wind of where the culture is going. We want to say, God, you know what makes for human flourishing. We trust you. You're good you're wise, you're wiser than we are, you're the ancient of days, I'm like 45, you've been here forever, so I trust what you say. On the other side, so there's all these things from, from that all the way to the other side of the spectrum, which is where I think we, honestly, as a church, I think we need to be worried about this side, because that's kind of where we live we're a church that's committed to the inerrancy and the full authority of Scripture. And when Scripture says something that goes against our culture, we say we, we let God be true and every man a liar. We believe God's word over against our own intuitions. Here's the thing, though. In complementarian churches that, that value and don't back away from the role distinctions between men and women in the home and in the church, in churches like ours, I think we can spot egalitarianism and theological liberalism coming at a mile out. But what we might not realize is there's also a threat on this side over here <laughs> that we might have not seen coming. We might not be as keen on the threat that's coming from the other side. I'll give you an example from this week. A sister in Christ, a, a Christian woman, and she, um, she posts a tweet, and in it she's pleading with seminary students in her seminary class, male seminary students, and here's what she writes. Brothers, when a professor goes off on a tangent against women ever teaching men, it's really not necessary to yell amen over and over again. Don't worry, we're already uncomfortable without your cheering. You see the problem on the other side? This sort of policing high-minded suspicion of our sisters in Christ. We know what you want. Don't tell me what you want. We know what you, you want a pulpit. You want to be an elder. You want to break the glass ceiling, right? It, where, where do we get that spirit from the New Testament, the cooperative, we're allies in the New Testament. Romans chapter 16 doesn't create that kind of spirit in the church. I, I've never met Jen Wilkin, but uh, she has helped me from a distance. She has been a gift of God's grace to me through her writing and online uh, articles and so forth. She serves on staff at the Village Church where Matt Chandler pastor is in Dallas. And one of the things that she says is so often it's just exhausting because my brothers in Christ will accuse me of wanting to preach 
on a Sunday morning to the gathered congregation and she says, I don't want to be a pastor of a church. I don't want to preach on a Sunday morning. And she said, the proof is, I could walk across the street and do that next Sunday. There are whole denominations that are doing that, that are holding their arms wide open. If I wanted that lane, there's a big wide lane for me to, to run in. But I don't want that. I want the Bible. Can't my brothers give me the benefit of the doubt? What suffers? What suffers when sons of Adam try to subdue the world without the daughters of Eve at our side? what suffers, Christian men suffer. We either burn out because we, we're trying to subdue the world with one set of shoulders when God said it wasn't good. I, I literally told you at the beginning, it wasn't enough for Adam to be in the garden by himself. Or we become proud because we start to think we're actually pulling it off without our sisters in Christ. So men suffer in that scenario. Women suffer. Why? Because God matures our faith as we express our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. You read Romans chapter 12, right there at the beginning, it gives you this massive given. What's the given? You've all got gifts. And what does Paul say? If you received a gift, we need that one. We need that one in the church. Men and women, we need all the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to you for the building up of the body of Christ. And if women aren't using their gifts, then women, there's an aspect of maturity in the faith that's not gonna come about because their gifts lie dormant. Which then leads to the third one, which follows immediately, which is the church suffers. Because the Holy Spirit empowers men and women with spiritual gifts, and they're all necessary. None of those are like gad gifts. They're all legitimate, valid, needed, celebrated gifts for the strengthening of the body of Christ, not just men suffering and women suffering and the church suffering. The world, literally the world suffers because if Adam could rule the world alone, God wouldn't have said it's not good for you to be alone. He would have said it's actually perfect that you're alone. That's how I intended it from the beginning. Rule the world and if Adam just needed another bro, I think Jim Wilkins says this, I believe it was her, who said if Adam just needed another bro, God would have put two elders in the Garden of Eden and just said, hey, do your thing. You're elders, do your thing, right? But he didn't, he didn't do that. He gave Adam and he brought alongside, he, he made Adam a king and he said, I'm sending you a queen. I'm bringing her from your side and I'm bringing her to your side. Adam has a queen we said this each week, we could say it each week when we talk about Imago Day. We can't honor God and dishonor those who bear his image. I'm convinced the world isn't feeling a fully powered church. We're not operating at 100% capacity. Yeah, we're, like a, we're like a 500 horsepower engine and we're driving 55 miles an hour in the slow lane. And you wonder why. So all the horses aren't running. Half the church is left on the sideline because Adam thinks he can do it alone. This message is not aimed at getting us to see men and women's roles as interchangeable in the home or the church. The, the effort in my heart and I think God's heart for us in scripture is he wants the church operating at 100% capacity. 100% power. 
brothers loving Jesus, growing in Jesus, and make disciples of Jesus, and our sisters at our side, right there with us, co-belligerents, partners in gospel crime, partners in gospel mischief here in the city and to the ends of the earth. That's the picture that God wants. It's a glorious thing. When that happens, the church gets dangerous in the world. What would it sound like? The song, the sadness, and the promise. The promise. So again, verse 28, God blessed them, the man and the woman, and God said to the man and the woman, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now Jesus shows up in the fullness of time. He doesn't set aside the creation mandate. He doesn't set aside the, the ordinary and everyday ways that we image God in our daily lives, right? In teaching and writing and cooking and building and, and baking and hospitality and bringing welcome basket to the neighbors on the street, right? All these kinds of changing diapers and bedtime stories and political science and hermeneutics and medicine and technology and hunting, all these things. This is us conquering the world as image bearers. You're just doing it on a daily basis. Just how do you subdue the earth? You wake up and you make your bed. How do you subdue the earth? You cut your grass, right? These are the everyday, ordinary ways in which we are reflecting who we belong to and who we were made by. Jesus doesn't set any of that aside, and yet he gives specific and unique spiritual direction to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, because he speaks to his disciples in a unique way. This is in your notes. God didn't give up his plan to spread his glory over the whole earth through his male and female image bearers. He didn't give up the plan. So what shape does be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it take in our lives as disciples of Jesus. We review it every Sunday. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In other words, translation, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it in Jesus' name. That's Jesus telling his people to be fruitful and multiply. It's still active. God's promise from the beginning was to bring a people from every nation into one massive family around his throne and so that as the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit through the church, God is literally multiplying his image around the world so that eventually, as Habakkuk says, the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Why? Because it will be filled with image bearers who have been made new in Christ, God's image being reclaimed in them. How will he do it? The spiritual family that is the church. Spiritual family that is the church. Important as the nuclear family is, and it continues to be important. We saw that in Ephesians just a few weeks ago. Important as that is, as we come to the New Testament, we see another kind of family take center stage. And it's the church family. It's the family of God. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says something shocking because he's hanging out with his disciples. And outside, they say, your mom and your brothers and your sisters are outside and they want to talk with you. And here's what Jesus says. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? What a strange question. Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Church is a family. It's the family you're gonna spend eternity with. Brothers and sisters in Christ. 
The Church of Brook Hills needs, get this, let's bring this home. The Church of Brook Hills needs spiritual fathers, mothers, sisters, and brothers, all saying to one another in word and in deed, I need you. Convinced that that's true. Look, gender complementarity insists it's still not good for the man to be alone. Wasn't then and it isn't now. And gender complementarity celebrates he's not alone. Good news, he's not alone. We have men and women in this church together making disciples. We have men and women in this church leading us in worship, leading us in prayer, baptizing disciples right over here. We have men and women leading small groups, co-leading small groups, investing in others. We have men and women sitting on elder selection teams and evaluating Brook Hills finances and strategizing about global advance, the, the, the advancement of the gospel around the world. We have men teaching other men God's word. We have women, Titus chapter two, teaching other women God's word. We have men and women leading co-ed groups in discipleship journey, small groups and in ministries where you have an Adam and you have an Eve at his side and both of them are leading a group of co-ed disciples where there's an Adam and he's leading but he's not alone. He has an Azer. All of that is intentional. So when the Holy Spirit poured out, was poured out on the early church, the prophecy that came to mind when they saw this thing go down on the day of Pentecost is all these disciples, 120 disciples, they come out and they're proclaiming the mysteries of God and they're proclaiming the gospel and all the languages of the earth that were known at the time. And the thought that comes back to their mind is, didn't Joel say something about this in the Old Testament? Yes, the prophet Joel said, in the last days, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, and your sons and the daughters will prophesy. Complementarity, back online. Adam's not ruling alone. He's not multiplying the gospel alone. R.C. Sproul said, God made Adam king over the creation and gave Eve to him as queen, not his slave. You think about that. So the first Adam was tasked to rule creation with his bride. And guess what? The second Adam, he doesn't rule the world by himself either. Here's what scripture says. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Right at Jesus Christ's side, reigning, judging the earth, is the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. It's not good even for the second Adam to rule alone. It's fascinating to me, you know, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, it talks about the work of Jesus Christ and his perfect death on the cross and how it, what it affects in the body of Christ, how he brings many sons and daughters to glory through his death on the cross. And then we're all there before the Lord, having been brought to glory by Jesus Christ, and here's what Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter two, for the one who sanctifies, that's Jesus Christ himself, and those who are sanctified all have one father. 
That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Look, take that all in. Even Jesus Christ himself, while standing to lead the church that he has purchased with his blood in the worship of the Father, he says, you know how I think of you? You're my brothers and sisters. Let's sing to the glory of the Father. How humble, how shocking is that? He could pull rank and he says, we're brothers and sisters, let's sing to the Lord together, honoring the Father. In the first century, ordinary men and women, empowered by the Holy Spirit, turned the world upside down in their culture. How? Because they weren't rivals, they were allies. And this has just been a sermon length that's all aimed at one thing, namely this. Let's try that. Not rivals, allies, image bearers. We need each other. 